I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. Later in the pod, you'll hear interviews that Lovett conducted with Los Angeles teachers outside of a school this morning, the first day of a teacher strike here in one of the biggest school districts in the entire country. Nice and early, you got up and went and talked to some teachers, Lovett? It was early, it was cold, it was wet, so you better fucking listen. <laughs> right. He was directing that if to I me. If I can do that, and the teachers can do that, you can do that. You know? Why not? Listen. Yeah. Okay. It's rainy here. We've also got a lot of news to cover today, from the truly bonkers Times and Post stories on Trump and Russia, to what is now the longest government shutdown in American history, to the growing list of Democrats who are running for president. Uh, before we get to that, Tommy, tell us about uh, PST dubs. What's going on there? <laughs> oh, God. Uh, this week, there have been some ongoing protests in Sudan, so we're going to try to get to the bottom of that with an activist, uh, and then Ben and I are going to tick through the news, all the weird stuff that we... You could include on this show the fact that we pulled out, we went back in, now we're pulling out again of Syria, but we're, you know, it's unclear. Can it be a tweet. Can you guys tell us whether um, John Bolton is going to take us to war in Iran while everything else is going on? Because that seemed pretty scary. Oh, uh, requesting options to strike Iran. Yeah, uh, that did seem troubling. <laughs> I, th- I read that and I thought, I hope I, hope I hear them about this from Tommy and Ben this week. That's, you know, that's interesting. That's a long-standing issue and anger that a lot of people in the military have of Iran providing specific type of munitions to use uh, by militia groups in Iraq that can take out armored vehicles and things. So, yeah, we'll get into that. Cool. Done. Finally, Pod Save America, Love It or Leave It, and Pod Save the People are all going on tour in 2019, as we have told you. Tickets for all are available at cricket.com slash events. We'll be announcing more tour dates and cities for Pod Save America tours on Tuesday. Tickets for all. It's like Medicare for all for tickets. Tickets for all. I so, like it. So be sure to check out our social media for a video with that announcement. In the meantime, you can keep watching every episode of Pod Save America online at youtube.com slash media. Hmm. I'm coming for your eyeballs. <laughs> All right. I am going to start with a New York Times headline for the ages. FBI opened inquiry into whether Trump was secretly working on behalf of Russia. How's that one, guys? Leaves a little bit of an aftertaste in your mouth. Huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just let that one marinate for marinate. a while and you're yeah. like... <laughs> Well, long, <laughs> long way from the New York Times in the fall of 2016, FBI sees no, no clear links. I, I like honestly, what a like, journey. That a was journey my first had. reaction, and maybe that says something bad about me and the kind of way in which we're all a bit too comfortable with the possibility that a president's a foreign agent. But uh, the, my first thought when I saw the headline was, "Well, New York Times, you certainly have come a long way. Better late than never." Better late than never, New York Times, coming to the idea that he might have had a connection to Russia when right before the fucking end of the election. Anyway. Tommy? Yeah, no. 
I, I came down on the very unsatisfying, uh, shocking, but not surprising answer, which mm-hmm. I think you're seeing a lot of places. Like if we had a time machine and we asked ourselves this question, or really any living American in 2015, what you thought about that headline, it would be the craziest, most terrifying thing possible. But today, given what we already know uh, in terms of what Mueller has been looking into, it, it, it sadly makes sense, I think, in terms of like the investigative process and procedure. Yeah. Um, for example, if I told you that a U.S. official gave the Russian ambassador highly classified intelligence about an Israeli operation against ISIS while in the Oval Office, you'd say, that's a counterintelligence problem. That, that's bad. That's you'd really also bad. be like, I hope the president fires that official. And then you'd be like, oh, no, it was the president. That's right. <laughs> that's right. And, and I, you know, I think we'll get to this, uh, so I won't do a long preamble. Position. but like, heal thyself. Heal thyself. Well, I think a lot of legal experts are, are struggling to understand what that report really means uh, because we don't have all the underlying facts, but also like really talk through the legal ramifications of uh, the extra designation and then just what it means to have the FBI treating the president of the United States as a counterintelligence risk. That's yeah. so, fraught, to say the least. So what does this mean, this story, right? It means that Donald Trump's firing of FBI Director Jim Comey was so concerning to the FBI that they launched a counterintelligence investigation so they could, quote, consider whether the president's own actions constituted a possible threat to national security. Agents also sought to determine whether Mr. Trump was knowingly working for Russia or had unwittingly fallen under Moscow's influence. So what is a counterintelligence investigation and how does this story change our understanding of Mueller's broader investigation? So a counterintelligence investigation means you're trying to figure out uh, if a foreign intelligence service is conducting espionage or clandestine intelligence collection against us. Uh, that is something that happens all the time. It's the FBI's mission. That, you know, they have a lot of authorities to do it. What makes this so fraught is that it's against the president of the United States. Um, you know, a lot of times you read a bad headline about Trump and you think you feel good. You're happy that we're finally learning the truth about this guy. I read this and I thought... This is so, so bad because it's bad that the president's behavior was so troubling that the FBI had to look into whether he's a national security risk. It is also terrible that an unelected law enforcement intelligence agency had to unilaterally decide that a president's actions might not be in the national security interests of the United States when those national security interests are, are delegated to the president. He gets to choose what's in our interests. So it is like so novel and so fraught, but they ultimately must have said the, the, the possibility that he is beholden to Russian interests uh, superseded and was more of a priority than the possibility of abuse by the FBI into looking into these matters, which there is a very long history of going back to J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the biggest debates we'll have after Trump, presumably we're all retaining human consciousness as a species, is um, what powers can the president delegate what powers can Congress take from the president and give to other parts of the executive branch? You know, conservatives, including now people like Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court, have often argued that all power, all presidential power flows from Article 2. It flows mm-hmm. from the power vested in the president via the Constitution. And that that's part of the reason why there's this notion that the president can fire the special counsel, because ultimately all those people get their power from him. They all are basically executing the president's job. But obviously, in this case, you see both the importance of and the dangers of what happens when presidential authority is delegated. The other thing I would just say is, I think one of the, what I was realizing as I was reading that story and also the Washington Post story is one of the the challenges here is we're constantly muddling behavior and motivation. So 
Is Donald Trump a national security risk? Yes. Is he doing things to undermine uh, the nation's uh, interests on behalf of Russia? That the answer says yes. It is obvious. He's been doing it for two years. He's doing it publicly. He's been doing it since the campaign. He has been doing it in Helsinki. He has been doing it through the policy actions of his administration or the lack of actions of his administration. Then there's this question of, well, what are his motivations? And I think there we know far less. And that to me is where you you look at something like this investigation. All the stories were very clear that it was – uh, all the sourcing and everything was it could have been witting it could have been unwitting yeah. right which is why I and mean, most things he does is unwitting which is why you know you read this story and on the one hand it's a bombshell and on yeah. the other hand you know it 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 forces us to confront something we already know we may not fully understand donald trump's motivations but we have seen his behavior so it's a funny thing like we're going to open up an investigation to see whether or not donald trump is a risk to america's national security of course he is of I, course he is I, I know well, there's also the question of like without understanding the underlying facts it's really hard to tell what this means like I, I listen to I've read and listened to as many smart people as I can on these issues, like former top DOG, top DOJ officials. And it's not clear to me what additional authorities you get from opening a specific counterintelligence investigation into Trump versus the already opened several investigations into collusion or obstruction or whatever. Like this could be as simple as the FBI's investigative manual requires you to open a sub investigation into an individual but like we just don't know because we don't know the facts and what we do know is i mean remember when rosenstein appoints Mueller, he basically appoints him with the charge of that becomes public you know investigating any links between uh, individuals associated with the trump campaign and russia and how it affected the 2016 campaign well trump is an individual associated with the trump campaign it's been long surmised that mm-hmm. Trump was included in this. This is just, like you said, yep. it could be as, as as innocent as, of course, we just have to take this extra step and formally launch this counterintelligence investigation. The other thing I thought that was interesting here is what triggered it is firing Comey, right? Yep. And so, um, and I think someone had this headline, but it was, uh, maybe it was Ben Wittes at Lawfare, which was like, perhaps the obstruction was part of the collusion, yeah, right? Like, by obstructing justice, which is a criminal act, which, of mm-hmm. course, the special counsel has charged to investigate of the president, um, because the president can obstruct justice. We do know that. That's on firm legal ground. By obstructing justice, he was therefore aiding and abetting the conspiracy with Russia, whatever happened, right? Because part of the reason he fired Comey, again, was because you know, of the Russia investigation, which he told us, which is what also set off a bunch of flags in the uh, in the FBI. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's two. I think there's two. I don't know. To me, you can boil this down. You say I, I pull two things from it. One, we're now we're now drawing a distinction between the Trump campaign and Donald Trump. And now we are learning that mm-hmm. they were looking at Donald Trump himself. That is one thing that's important. And um, if not totally new, at least now kind of uh reported that this was now an investigation, not just into associates around Donald Trump, but Donald Trump himself. And then the second piece, Charles Charles Pierce and Esquire pointed this out, which is there's this <clears> line <throat> in the Times story that says that the connections between Donald Trump, uh, that connections between Donald Trump and Russia have not yet been publicly made known, right? That there are perhaps, and that that Mark Warner and Adam Schiff and, and some of the Republicans who have all been very quiet and very reticent to comment on this story, that what, what we may be learning through their, through their, whatever discretion mm-hmm. is that and what the and that the New York Times may also know is that there is more to come about the specific evidence that came out of this investigation about the ways in which Donald Trump and Russia were working together and that we just don't know yet. Well that's an this is an important point too because 
you know, obviously the FBI is not a co-equal branch of government. It's part of no. the executive branch, but Congress is. And so I think the first question a lot of people had was, well, was Congress briefed on this counterintelligence investigation? And Senators Burr, Warner, Schiff, a whole bunch of people were asked over the weekend, and they all declined to comment. They declined to yeah. comment. And, and that, to me, is likely a yes, because yeah. if they were not, you would imagine that the Republicans would be pissed. Right. Yeah. You would imagine that Burr, at least Burr, would be out there saying something like, I can't believe this investigation was ever conducted, blah, blah, blah. The Democrats would be pissed, too. They'd be like, everyone would be pissed. Yeah. Everyone wants to know this information. Now, notably, Trump himself said he just learned about this story in The New York Times, which is interesting (laughs) because, you know, you you collect information and intelligence – Arguably to run it up to the president, ultimately. I mean, that that's the point of intelligence collecting. So the, the whole thing is just complicated and fraught. Yeah, and Adam Goldman, who uh, was one of the reporters who wrote the story, was interviewed about it. And mm-hmm. he said, it's my understanding, having talked to people in the FBI, that if they hadn't opened this, they felt it would have been a severe abdication of duty. Right. And they did wrestle with it. I'm sure. Whether they should do this or not. But they felt like in the end, <clears throat> they could not let this go in good conscience. Now, whether... I hope you'll let this go. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you'll see fit to let this go. Oh, my God. I mean... I guess I just ask, like, how do we begin to actually grapple with the idea that the president of the United States may be compromised by a foreign power? Like, I started thinking about this over the weekend. It is something so big and so somewhat terrifying that I don't even know how how you how you start to unpack it. I yeah, I think we I think we sort of in some ways been grappling with it for two years. I mean, the the special counsel, if they find collusion, that to me is essentially a proxy for him being compromised. Because if Vladimir Putin has known since Election Day that he helped Donald Trump win with the support of Trump in his campaign, then he owns him. Right. Uh, and he could disclose that at any time That's in the his tape. career. Exactly. Right. The, 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 P- the P-tape, P-tape is, is the friends the, he made along the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so to like the reporters, you, you, you mentioned Adam Goldman, they, in that interview, they said that their first response to this story was sort of, well, duh. Obviously, there's a counterintelligence investigation, but the implications as you play them out in your mind, especially when we get to our next topic about yeah. hiding all the notes from conversations with Putin, are massive. Yeah, so that brings us to the next topic. Another reason to suspect that the president may be compromised by a foreign power was reported in the Washington Post over the weekend. The hits just kept coming. Apparently, Donald Trump has been hiding details of his interactions with Vladimir Putin from people within his own White House, going so far as to at least once take the notes away from an interpreter who facilitated one of his meetings with Putin and told that person not to talk about what happened in the meeting with anyone else in the administration. Uh, As such, no detailed record exists of several of Trump's interactions with Putin. Tommy, how unusual is it for this to happen? What usually happens when there's a meeting between two foreign leaders? I mean, normally, if there's a, a there's a meeting between two foreign leaders, there's a larger meeting that's six, seven, eight relevant officials on either side, and then sometimes that gets skinnied down to a tighter group of people, and maybe, maybe there's a one-on-one component um, to to just either only have Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, in the meeting, or just an interpreter is wildly unusual. I mean, I can think of times during the Obama administration when we locked down distribution of notes from a meeting or a transcript of a call. Hypothetically, Obama calls Bibi Netanyahu. They're talking about incredibly secret uh, details of Iran's nuclear program. Like, you get why that's close hold. That's also a conversation with a friend who you can uh, reasonably expect to keep that close hold within their administration, too. The crazy thing about this is hiding the notes of your conversation with Putin from your own team doesn't keep it a secret. 
it just keeps it from the United States. Like Putin is going to tell whoever the hell he wants about the meeting. I would be shocked if the Russians weren't recording the meeting. So basically, you are just allowing Putin to uh, dictate the readout of that meeting to his team publicly, uh, spread disinformation, which they're known to do. So like, can I, you're, you're, you're harming yourself can, if you're Trump. Can I ask, yeah. don't you think, is it possible also that after the meeting, if Putin discusses the meeting with his team, it's possible that our intel services yeah. know what was discussed? And that was reported in this story and has been reported previously that all kinds of people in the administration are trying to figure out what the hell was discussed, to include H.R. McMaster, who at the time was the national security advisor. He said he could never get a full readout of the meeting, I forget which one, uh, from Tillerson or from anybody else. So our intel guys are trying to collect on Putin's team to figure out what the fuck our president said in a meeting with Putin. It is wild. Now, I get that he might have been paranoid about leaks because at one point the transcript of the call with the Canadians and the Australians got out, but like... Can you imagine any scenario where Barack Obama would have a meeting or a conversation with the foreign leader and would refuse to read out what he said to <laughs> Dennis McDonough, Tom Donilon, Susan Rice? No. No. No person. Not No, no, especially not someone who's an adversary. Okay. Here, here, <laughs> someone here, who just attacked our Here's attacked the scenario. The, the, the prime minister of the UK says, I have a... Uh, horrible degenerative disease and i'm only telling you maybe you don't tell your team yeah. but like a two-hour meeting with vladimir putin that's crazy this all, this all to me goes this is similar it connects back to the first story too which is ultimately what comes out of that meeting is a set of actions right like what they say to each other in private goes to goes to what Donald Trump will do as a policymaker as president of the united states and what vladimir putin will do as the leader of russia so I guess there's things that could come out of that where where we will discover after the fact that Putin takes an action and Donald Trump fails to respond or responds in some inordinate way. And from there, we learn perhaps that's what they discussed in the meeting. He gave him permission to do something. He he uh, agreed he wouldn't care about some issue in Ukraine or <coughs> in Syria or what have you. But ultimately, what has to come out of these meetings is policy, is decisions. Yep. And those decisions are not implemented by Donald Trump. He's never I mean, pre there have been presidents that are hands-on. This is not one of them. No. There's not a president who is calling up to dictate the movements of his administration. No. It's, it's activated through his own people who don't know what happened in that meeting. So similar to the problem with this New York Times story, not the problem, but similar to the similar to this sort of uh, uh, this like dichotomy between the New York Times story and this Washington Post story is a lot of what we are coming to understand is we don't understand Donald Trump's motivations. His motivations are hidden from us and very well be, be nefarious and ultimately may be part of the greatest scandal in modern global political history. Yeah. We don't know that. But what we do know are his behaviors, right? His behaviors are deeply troubling, and that is public, and that has been true the whole time. So on the, we have this strange situation in which we may be in the midst of, of uncovering one of the greatest scandals we've ever seen. And it actually won't lead us to a, a conclusion very different from the one we've already drawn. Well, as you say, like, <clears throat> we don't know all the facts yet, but we know even more than his just his behaviors. Right. I mean, one example that a lot of people were pointing out after the story was, remember, the White House learns that The New York Times is about to run a story that there is a meeting in Trump Tower between Don Jr., Jared, mm -hmm. Paul Manafort and this Russian lawyer. And they asked them for comment. And that night there's a dinner where Trump is with Putin, and he's already had a meeting during the day. That's where he had the meeting with Tillerson and mm -hmm. the translators. At the dinner, he grabs Putin, 
and it's just the two of them. And Putin's interpreter, I think. And Putin's interpreter, right. Sorry. So it's who's the two of them. KG, who's a KGB or <laughs> whatever, SVR agent, whatever the fuck they call themselves. So it's the two of them and, uh, and Putin's interpreter, and they talk about adoptions, which is also about sanctions. sanctions. And we know that because later in an interview with the New York Times in the Oval, Trump's just blabbing on and on and tells yep. Maggie that he talked to Putin about adoptions. And then we know that when they got back to the New York Times, Donald Trump himself dictated the statement that was a lie to the New York Times that at the Trump Tower meeting, Don Jr. and the rest of them were, and the Russian lawyer were only talking about adoptions, mm -hmm. sanctions policy. Yeah. So, and we also know that Mueller has been looking into specifically the fact that Donald Trump dictated the statement that was a lie. And everyone's like, well, the Trump president can lie. That's not a crime. But clearly, Mueller's, one of the reasons Mueller's looking into it is because of the fucking Putin thing the night before. Yeah, and I just want <laughs> to raise one other instance, which was there was a recent cabinet meeting where Trump said that Russia was in Afghanistan because terrorists were going into Russia, and, and he said they were right to be there. Now, that is wildly factually wrong. The Russians were in Afghanistan as part of their pro-communism Cold War strategy. They basically went in, deposed a, a leader they thought was too Western, installed a guy they liked better. By the way, we were fighting against them. We were arming proxy forces in Afghanistan. Uh, there's no evidence, though, that terrorism was the motivation for Russia to go into Afghanistan. So it's not surprising that Trump was totally wrong about something. Not at all. But in this instance, you have to wonder, where the hell did he learn this from, right? Because his neocon national security team, like John Bolton's not peddling this Russian propaganda. Pompeo, Mattis, H.R. McMaster, they are not either. So this had to come from the Russians. This, this was like came directly from Putin. And he's believing and regurgitating Russian propaganda, which makes what happened in these meetings all the more and troubling. That's it's very the first rare. Time. It's very, There's other it's examples very, of that, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's very rare. Look, we've been debating the, the domino theory. And whether what the U.S. posture should be towards like Soviet expansion for a mm -hmm. long time, but it's very—it's the first time I believe that an American president has said the domino theory is real and very good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, That's right. the question is, what should Democrats in Congress do about this? House Intelligence Chair Adam Schiff has said he wants the notes or testimony from the interpreter. Uh, Republican politicians, of course, dismiss the whole story as trivial. <laughs> uh -huh. Kevin McCarthy, fucking Kevin McCarthy, my Kevin, my Kevin. My Kevin. Already trying to outdo Paul Ryan. Uh, Kevin McCarthy said it was about Trump wanting to build a personal relationship with Putin. Yeah, that happens all the time, Kevin. So what do we think about this? Now, other Republicans or other people have said, look, you can't start subpoenaing, you know, or, or you can't grab notes and testimony like that because then presidents in the future will feel like they can't have private conversations mm -hmm. with foreign leaders. Whoa. This is very similar to the debate that happened after the transcripts of Trump's conversations with uh, the Mexican Mexican president mm -hmm. and the Australian prime minister leaked. And they said, look at this. This is a disaster. This is extraordinary. Presidents aren't going to be able to trust their team. They're not going to be able to trust that their conversations will be held private. That's a very important concern. However, you have it. That concern is only valid if you don't believe Donald Trump is unique and deserves unique scrutiny and, and uh, uh, unique transparency. It is obviously the case that he deserves that. Now, if in the future, a future president has to worry that he won't be able to have conversations with an interpreter because that interpreter could one day be dra dragged in front of Congress. That's a problem we'll have in the future. But right now, we're looking at the situation in which he has tried to conceal information from his own government. There are legitimate questions raised about the president's loyalty to the United States. There's plenty of evidence to support the fact that it's at least a worthy, uh, a worthy investigation. And so, yeah, there's a very valid concern there. It is trumped by the concern that Donald Trump is a disloyal person who deserves to be investigated fully. So, 
yeah, we want, we, I want presidents to have whatever executive privilege. I want presidents to be able to have private conversations. They need to be able to have debates amongst their team and be honest. And all that is very true and very important. But something supersede it. And this is a case where we have a national interest that supersedes yeah. it. I mean, it's almost easier than that in this instance, though, because <clears throat> then Trump went on uh, Judge Janine's show on Saturday night. Uh, he called into it. And he said, I couldn't care less couldn't if care my conversation less. with Putin becomes public. <laughs> yeah, but he said that in the same way he said he wanted to talk to Robert Mueller. Right, but he's, this, just, he's just bluffing. This is part of Mueller's, what Mueller's going after, too. So, you know, there's a story last week that Mueller is looking at his public statements as evidence of obstruction. Like, mm -hmm. at some point, the public statements and the tweets catch up with them. Like, yeah. Because, okay, if you're president, if you don't care that the conversations come out, then let the conversations come out. Then you obviously don't have a problem. And if you do have a problem, then tell us why you have a problem. Right. It's <laughs> so wild to just snatch the notes out of your interpreter's hands and run away with them. Why isn't anyone talking about uh, calling Rex, Rex Tillerson to testify? He was in the meeting. Yeah, Rex should be subpoenaed. It was weird that people are all focused on the interpreter and not just well, not on Rex, too. Well, I think people are more, more concerned about the Rexless meetings <laughs> is probably the answer there. Um, they can't, he's, um, he's in a... Uh, jacuzzi filled with pure texas crude <laughs> uh that was quite the interview with judge janina on saturday night oh, that's so funny tommy i know you were watching it too we were both uh yeah I'd, both I'd, I'd, respective houses watching judge janina that on is saturday super night. cool saturday um he also used the occasion of that interview to threaten michael cohen's father-in-law <laughs> yes he did which he's he said there's going to be some uh, some big stories coming out about him and she's and then J judge janine goes what's his name he goes i don't know <laughs> <laughs> Which earned him a warning from congressional Democrats that uh, it's against the law to intimidate witnesses. She just tries to tee up softballs to him. And instead of swinging at them, he catches them and throws them at her. Like he gets increasingly angry throughout the interview when she's trying to provide him the easiest forum possible to deny these charges, which he just doesn't do. Like I, I'm not I'm not making too much of the fact that he didn't deny being a Russian asset because he lies about everything. Right. Why like, would he lie that, about that's this? That's so frustrating. Like, oh, very interesting. The right. president refused to say the word no. He lies. He would. Li he lies all the time. He, d he didn't well, he think said, about it that he way. He said no this morning. So yeah, it it's all yeah. well, They it, sent him out to say no because uh, everybody was saying he didn't actually say no. Who gives a shit? Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. Hey, it's Lovett, and I'm on my way to your city. And by on my way, I mean I'm still in the shower, but still, about to head out. Love It or Leave It live on tour is heading all over the country. We'll be in Charlotte, Asheville, Boston, Madison, Chicago, and Pittsburgh. And if we're not coming to your city this time, I'm sorry, the country is too big. Take it up with the pioneers. To learn more and get tickets, head to crooked.com slash events. Guys, it's been a rough year. 
It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Our potentially compromised president uh, has also now set the record for the longest government shutdown in history. Congrats. Uh, Federal workers have now started missing paychecks. More people are filing for unemployment. Food banks are reporting a growing need. NBC ran a heartbreaking story over the weekend about one woman who's been forced to ration her insulin. Um, Meanwhile, polls over the weekend from CNN as well as the Washington Post and ABC show that most of the country is... Not confused at all about whose fault this is. Uh, 53% blame Trump and the Republicans. 29% blame Democrats. And only 13% say both sides are to blame. They're all, they're all pundits in green rooms. They're all picking sides, yeah. <laughs> 13%. In the CNN poll, Trump's approval is only at 37%, with 57% disapproving. The disapproval number has risen five points in one month. Uh, and only around 40% of the public is for the wall in the first place. Washington Post poll is 42, 39 in CNN. Meanwhile, 50% of Americans now call the shutdown very serious, up from 29% at the start. Guys, usually the polling is what helps end these things. In the past, that's been true. Why are Trump and the Republicans seemingly immune to these numbers? Or I guess do, do we have to just wait and see? I think we have to wait and see. I don't believe that they're immune to these numbers. I think... Acting as if you're immune to these numbers is what you do right before you cave. Mm. It's always the way, you know, the shutdowns are always going to last forever right before they end. So I don't think we know. I mean, I think we talked about it a lot. There is a anti-democratic streak <clears throat> inside of the Republican Party. We see it all the time. This is a manifestation of it. I mean, we're talking about a president who didn't receive the popular vote being uh, uh, backed by a Congress that did not receive a majority of support uh, for a project that doesn't have majority support. Um, so, you know, I don't think we know the answer to that, but I think we're seeing the kind of polling that usually leads the side being held responsible for the shutdown to find a way to cave. Even Lindsey Graham's proposal is a compromise as a way to cave. I mean, they're all looking for a way out of yeah, this moment. Out. Yeah, Graham's saying, like, let's let's just, you know, open the government, uh, pull the plug on this and, and declare a state of emergency. Like, they, they want this to be over. But I think the thing that's freaking people out is, Trump's allies told Politico that he might keep the government closed even after an emergency declaration, getting his border money, because he is so worried about the Democrats getting a win. There is this, there's this overtone in the coverage that's like, is Donald Trump ready for perpetual political war? And I think that ignores the fact that that's all he knows. Like, he thrives on it yeah. because it drives a news cycle. It fires up his base. It gets him covered. And so he doesn't care. And, like, Peter Baker made the point today that that what is at stake in this fight is $5.7 billion, which is roughly one-eighth of 1% of the total federal budget. So in a normal world, like, there's a middle ground there that you could figure out. Uh, if that little amount of money leads to the longest shutdown ever, we could be in for some much bigger fights, which is why I think Democrats are, think if they cave on this, they're going to shut down. The, they're going to have government shutdowns to deal with in perpetuity. Well, yeah, what struck me about um, some of the comments over the weekend was he is shooting down. Trump is shooting down compromises even from his aides, his closest allies. That Lindsay, you know, Lindsey Graham's proposal, which is so fucking ridiculous. It was like, let's open up the government for three weeks 
And then at the end, if we haven't negotiated, then he can do his national emergency. And Brian Schatz point out, three weeks brings us to February 8th, which is what the original yeah. CR that they voted 100 to nothing for was back in February. So- also, but national emergencies, uh, if it's a true national emergency, which will, of course, be challenged in court... It can't be based around the congressional schedule and when negotiations <laughs> run out. It's not how that's not how emergencies work, yeah, and that not. will ultimately mean it doesn't actually go anywhere. Yeah, that's, that's not, that, the court's not going to enjoy that argument very much. So he shuts down Graham's proposal. Um, apparently, you know, he was in a meeting with congressional leaders with uh, you know Chuck and Nancy and the rest of the crew, and Mick Mulvaney, his new chief of staff, was in there. And Mulvaney was like, well, maybe we can go below 5.7 and we can go to something. And he just starts yelling at Mick Mulvaney. He said, you just fucked it up, Mick. You fucked it up, Mick. I got him right where they want him. This is it. This is the art of the deal. And Mick Mulvaney coming in here, fucking up my whole thing. First, you shut down the government without a plan, okay? Then you get real unpopular, all right? Then you call Janine Pirro. Right before the final act, Mick Mulvaney fucks it up. I want to read a little anecdote that I guess in the meetings, Trump is just all over the place. He's doing his normal stream of consciousness diatribe that you would see at any event, any TV interview. So I guess in one meeting with uh, Pelosi and Schumer, he started trashing the Iran nuclear deal. And he told Democrats that they should give him money for the wall because they gave Barack Obama (laughs) money for the agreement with Tehran. Like he is so confused on the facts that of course this thing is stuck in, in he's, place. He's very unwitting there. Yeah, that was unwitting. an unwitting comment. Indeed. Um, <laughs> thinking about all this, what I don't understand is I don't get how we get out of this now because uh-huh. last week I thought to myself, oh, he's he's building towards this emergency declaration. Me too. And it's awful and authoritarian and horrible, but like, it, you know, it's a face-saving measure and at least we'll all get out of it and the government will open. But he's shooting down every single compromise. He went out today and said, I don't think I'm going to do the emergency declaration. And so... I don't know how we get out of this, but it's it's very serious right now. Like I think it's yeah. it's gone so far beyond like uh, Trump's tantrum and political games. Like you read these stories and like people are hurting; they can't afford like basic necessities. There's people at jobs. It's going to start affecting the larger economy. Like I don't know what the fuck to do here. I yeah, know. I mean this. It seems. But I think it's time for like mass protests here. I mean, yeah, I, I think we're gonna. It's. I think protests maybe one of the things we're gonna. I'll end up having to do to get out of it. It's also, you know, we talked about this before, that there was there was often during the Obama administration these two potential crises. One was a government shutdown and one was default. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and a shutdown is is very bad, but ultimately not as destructive as default. But if a government shutdown is allowed to go on and on and on, it has a lot of, like, the longer it goes, the more it becomes a true national crisis, a true national emergency, not only for the millions of people uh, not only for the federal workers affected, but the millions of people who rely on uh, food stamps and other things, and also the businesses that rely on those checks, the ripple effects start getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The other piece of this, which is just an unspoken and accepted fact, is that Donald Trump doesn't care about the people affected. You know, mm-hmm. in any other shutdown, you could count on the fact that everyone at that table, they may be craven and political and ideological, but there's some portion on both sides that has genuine empathy and does not want to be a party to hurting people for no reason. But Donald Trump doesn't care. He doesn't have that muscle. He doesn't have that empathy. And so one of the things that would help end this shutdown, we just don't have. Yep. Yeah. No, what has, to, what has to happen is because Donald Trump's an asshole who will only um, budge when uh, you know, Fox and Friends and Ann Coulter and the people on Fox tell him to, which they won't because, you know, there's not a lot of souls there either. 
Um, and none, and they don't, they're not on food stamps. They don't know anybody. No, on they're food fucking stamps. rich. They don't Sean care. Hannity and Ann Coulter are fucking rich, and they don't give a shit about people. Okay, um, but the in the Senate. These moderate Republicans, you know, we've already had Collins, Murkowski, Gardner, because, uh, you know, uh, Gardner and Collins are up in, up in 2020. Um, more moderate Republicans have to, or some Republicans or Senate Republicans, whether they're moderate or not, they just have to be scared of losing, right? They have to go to McConnell and tell him, go to Trump and end this. Because mm-hmm. Mitch McConnell could end this today. Today. Mitch McConnell, if you, if you put a funding bill on the floor in the Senate, it would pass if not 100 to nothing like the last one did, by a, probably a veto-proof majority. Mitch McConnell could end this today and override Trump's veto, and yeah. then Kevin McCarthy would there be like 15, 20, 30, whatever votes you need of Republicans in the House. They'd pass the bill, and this thing would be over tomorrow. The problem is that you idiots like Lindsey Graham is on TV saying that if we don't get Trump's back on this, that's the end of his presidency as we know it. So they've just like <laughs> set the stakes They've all so painted themselves into the high. corner. They've, they've let him just... Take them off a cliff. And they knew damn well he had no plan. There's there's stories about them all trying to talk him out of this shutdown, but he they, just went through with it. Again, you know, you go back to the cause of all of this. The Republicans already voted to open the government, and then Donald Trump pitched a fit. That is the order of operations. You know, there are other ways this could end, right? You can It can go out with a whimper. You can see bills opening up parts of the government starting to pass. That starts to crack the Republican intransigence. Maybe Donald Trump vetoes one. We don't know. Maybe he sends it back. Maybe he doesn't. I think we don't fully know, but I think the position Democrats have taken continues to be the right one. We cannot give. You can't give into the policy. You also can't give into this kind of governance when there's so much on the line and there's so many fights of real consequence to come. There's just no option for Democrats other than to continue to put pressure not only on Trump, but on Senate Republicans. There's yeah. uh, there's no other way out of this for us. And I think people out there, you know, you have to keep calling your members of Congress and you know, I know that there have been some, you know, protests already, but I do think this has to command national attention. These stories of people hurting uh, have to command national attention. And I think, you know, this week, as, as this drags on and people are starting to feel the effect of not getting a paycheck, it's time for people to really take action, you know. And, like, look, people have taken – this has happened in the Trump presidency, like, around the travel ban, the Women's March, at the March for Our Lives. Like, I think we need to treat – a bunch of people who don't make a ton of money and really count on these paychecks and hurting and what that's going to do to themselves and their families as seriously as we take, we've take we taken all of these other emergencies in the Trump presidency. Yeah, it's funny. It's just tying all this together, too. It's like here we are, you know, all of us who warned and were worried about what a Trump presidency would mean. We are now over two years in. The government is shut down for basically no reason whatsoever because of a fit by a narcissist. The stupidest and the longest shutdown. Mm-hmm. Longest <laughs> shutdown in history. There are, you know, this, the, the positions of technically White House Chief of Staff, Secretary of Defense. Uh, these are open positions, which with no hopes of being... Lobbyists filled. running the cabinet. Lobby, lobbyists <laughs> running the cabinet. Most, Attor- of them under, most of them haven't been appointed. Most no, of them haven't been confirmed. <laughs> no attorney general. Uh, uh, president under multiple investigations. Um, we've seen rolling back of uh, environmental protections. We've seen ro- business allowed to kind of run roughshod over regulations throughout the government. This is, this is what we feared. We are in it. We are in. We are in the version of the Trump presidency that we feared right now. And one of the things we've said from the very beginning is we just didn't know how bad it would get. And the truth is, we still don't. We don't know how long the shutdown will go because we don't have a true president. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's talk about 2020. Uh, <laughs> since. Uh, 
That's the hope here. That's the next hope, uh, since there was a bunch of news on that front over the last few days. Uh, former San Antonio mayor and U.S. Housing Secretary Julian Castro formally announced his presidential campaign over the weekend from his hometown in Texas. He said he wants to run on a platform advocating for universal pre-K, Medicare for all, a Green New Deal, a higher minimum wage, and comprehensive immigration reform. Castro, who's Mexican-American, is one of the highest-profile Latinos to ever seek his party's nomination. His first campaign stop will be in Puerto Rico, where he'll meet with survivors of Hurricane Maria. Then he's scheduled to go to New Hampshire. Love it. You spoke to Castro a few weeks ago. What were your impressions? My honest impression is, uh, you know, I'm looking for a reason why this person, who has never run even for statewide office, decided to run for president, for why he has gotten in the race when, we, then there, when there are so many other Democrats. And honestly, I still don't know why. I don't understand the justification. You know, he's, put, he's saying the right things. He's putting forward the right policies. But when you ask for, like, a genuine reason for why this person is running for president, why take this great risk, when clearly he's a long shot, when clearly he's lesser known, when clearly he has a reputation for being boring, and you ask for a reason why you're in this race, I don't think anyone has heard one yet. And I think we should just all be honest about that because this is the most important presidential election uh, since the last one. <laughs> and there is so much on the line. And I want to know that people are getting in the race because they think that that because they think it's so important and they're the person that should win rather than a lot of people who are going to look at it as an opportunity to raise their profile, even though they don't have a chance. What do you think, Tom? Uh, I think, you know, the resume on paper, like uh, Stanford, Harvard Law, mayor of the seventh largest city in the nation, Secretary of HUD, like it's, it's good on paper. The platform you talked about uh, as a lot of like sort of barrier to entry, I'd say, progressive policies, you know, I mean, universal pre-K is not something we've talked about a lot on the show, but only 55 percent of American three to four year olds attended preschool. So that's a big, important thing. Um, I think it's interesting that his first trip is to Puerto Rico. I think that's distinctive and interesting. And I'm with love it. Like, I think. For a lot of candidates in a crowded field, you're looking for how to distinguish yourself. Like Jay Inslee came out and said that he'd be running as a climate change yeah. candidate, right? And I think that's interesting and distinctive. I think Castro has a little more work to do uh, on that front. Um, but, you know, it's super, super early, so he's got time. But, yeah, you got to – you. It's it's going to be harder than ever to make news that you want to make this cycle. Yeah, it made me think, you know, listening to his speech, um, you know, when, when Elizabeth Warren – announced um one point we made was that she doesn't just have a list of very bold progressive policies um she has a story that weaves those policies together you know she has a reason for running right and she has a story she has a theory of the case Mm -hmm. that there are you know corporations have been screwing the middle class they've been rigging the game and what we need to do is sort of unrig the game with uh rules of the road and you know this is what she's been doing her whole life and it sort of all connects and so in a 20-person field when you hear the name elizabeth warren you think oh yeah i know what her story is Mm -hmm. i know why she's running and i think castro it's interesting because you're right he has this list of very bold progressive policies and i'm starting to think that in this race in 2020 in the primary there's not going to be a ton of difference for a lot of these candidates about the policies that they propose. They're all going to be bold, progressive policies, which, by the way, is great news and credit to a lot of the um, you know, left-leaning folks in the party for pushing the party to embrace things like Medicare for All and Green New Deal, whether it's you know, AOC or, or Barney in 2016 or on some of these issues, Hillary's platform in 2016, whoever it may be. right? So it's, it's good that we're all going to be there. I think what ends up distinguishing you is your theory of the case either about why you chose these policies, what's your priority among these policies, 
and your theory of politics and what's wrong with the country at this given moment. And when I listened to Castro's speech, it did seem very like, I'm running, here's my bio, here's where I grew up, and here's a bunch of policies, and they're important to me, and Donald Trump is bad, and um, so there, there it is. And it's like, you just sort of want a little more that it's like, it's a little too cautious, a little too checklisty, you know, and I think, look, he, one of the reasons that pre-K, he talked about pre-K is when he was mayor of San Antonio, he instituted universal pre-K there. Mm -hmm. And if that's an issue he's passionate, passionate about, and that is where he has this long record, then, you know, go around the the country making that a huge issue and, and make it a big deal and talk about it all the time. Like, Talk about what you really believe in, what you've done in your life, because that gives you, you know, that gives you more of a leg to stand on when you're in a field of 20 people and it will help distinguish you. Right. I also think that, like, there's there's what will help these candidates politically. Right. And I think that's absolutely absolutely true. You know, you look at someone like Elizabeth Warren and you say, well, this is a person who has been advocating for these positions for a very long time. The announcement video and the position she took in that announcement and the way she talked about policy and politics is how she's been speaking for <laughs> better part of 20 years, if not longer, long before it was the mainstream position of Democrats. Also, she has a record on those issues. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau exists because of her. She's made the right enemies. She has been doing this for a long time. And so when someone like Julian Castro steps up and says, I have these same views, largely, you know, I take these same policy positions, you have to ask, well, first of all, in a field in which we're going to see a lot of people who have lived those values and done it at a national level and done it for a long time, I, I, you know, both at a political level just to break through in this primary, but also to me as a person hoping to find a candidate who I think will actually pursue those things when they win, that long record of actually having done it is really important, not because it'll help you win a debate, but because we actually need someone to do those things. Because one lesson of the last 10 years is maybe our failure to be bold enough once we were elected opens the doors to villains like Trump. But let me, let me push you on one point there, because... Um, we've also talked about how exciting in 2018 um, Beto O'Rourke, Stacey Abrams, Andrew Gillum all were. And the three of them didn't have very, very long records. Um, I guess Stacey Abrams probably had more than anyone because she's minority leader in the, uh, in the Georgia legislature. But um, there was something else about those three candidates that were exciting. And, you know, you could see them as all three of them as, as national candidates. And yet I think we'd all say that they're different than Julian Castro, and maybe we'd be excited about those three running more than Castro. So on that case, it doesn't seem to be like a long record. Well, I think it's also, I think in an era in which we are constantly confronted by very tested messages uh, that understand what people in the base want and what can help you, and we look for evidence that, A, people have done things that were risky, mm -hmm. that took chances, also that yeah. demonstrates not authenticity, but like actual zeal and integrity and passion. And you look at the kind of campaign Stacey Abrams ran, you look at the kind of campaign Andrew Gillum ran, you look at the campaign that Beto O'Rourke ran, and you see that in there. Yeah. You see someone who is willing to say things that might not help them, that may even cost them votes, because it's what they believe and it's the kind of person they are, and we need more of that. Yeah, and that's an important point. Um, the other Democrat who jumped into the presidential contest this week was Tulsi Gabbard. A congresswoman from Hawaii who announced her intentions in an interview on CNN with Van Jones. Uh, she said a formal announcement would be coming shortly and shared that criminal justice reform, climate change, and health care would be among her priorities as a candidate. Gabbard, an Iraq War veteran who was also the first Hindu and American Samoan elected to Congress, 
has excited and alarmed both Democrats and Republicans during her time in politics. She made news in 2016 when she resigned a position at the DNC and supported Bernie Sanders for president. She made even bigger news when she traveled to Syria and met with President Bashar al-Assad and questioned whether he was responsible for a chemical attack on civilians. He was. She's also twice called the LGBTQ community and supporters of same-sex marriage, quote, homosexual extremists, which she says she now regrets, along with the anti-marriage position she took back then. Guys, uh, what to make of Tulsi Gabbard here? I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of people ask that question. I mean, it, like she was she was elected to the Hawaii state legislature at like 21, 22, and she left that seat to go serve in Iraq, which is obviously very admirable and impressive, and not a lot of politicians make that kind of sacrifice. So good side of the ledger. The Assad meeting, uh, the questioning of chemical weapons use, that is baffling to me. Uh, uh, I think... She worked for her father's anti-LGBT organization, which was trying to pass measures against same-sex marriage in Hawaii and, and promoting really awful things like uh, conversion therapy. Yeah. And so I, I don't want to make excuses for her, but maybe like the family element of this is weird. But still, I mean, that is a non-starter for a Democrat. It's, it's, a it's, it's not like in 2004 you were against same-sex marriages. Right. Plenty of Democrats were there. But like homosexual extremists, gay conversion therapy, like, even if you've evolved, that's quite a thing to evolve from. Well, (laughs) yes, and also, you know, one of her explanations is, like, you know, she she saw what theocracy is what she said that she saw what theocracy could look like in the middle east and it changed her views on what the government should do Hmm. which leaves open both to her having still personal views on gay issues that are anathema to democratic voters but the question i would have there is what were you not able to see about the humanity of gay people before that right like why is it that you had to go halfway around the world only to 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 come home to discover that gay people were people that deserve the same rights that you have i don't understand it i think you know i find myself thinking like is this here's somebody who has who is willing to take let's call them heterodox positions inside Mm -hmm. of the democratic party and maybe we're also accustomed to unified democratic kind of consensus that it's hard to really break someone like this down ideologically but then i think you know what i don't so much care you know i don't need to understand the the overall philosophy of a person who's taken positions that i find so abhorrent yeah um also steve bannon's a fan set up a meeting with her and trump right after the election to see if she maybe would take a job in the administration which of course she didn't she's been very critical of trump ever since but another weird Weird one. Yeah. Some weird stuff here. Crowded field. <laughs> Getting crowded, complicated. Crowded field. Not sure if uh, not sure if we need to. Exactly. Not sure if we need to pick these apart since we have like you know twenty something other candidates. Yeah. My only concern. My only concern is I know in the there's a, that in the first few deba- debates they may roll the does that the, the, they may roll the dice to see who's on stage and yeah. I'm just like. I'm just a little bit worried about some of those dice rolls, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, who's on stage with who here? What am yeah. I dealing with? How am I going to figure this out? Uh, quick thing here, you know, uh, one person who's not running, uh, Tom Steyer, the billionaire <laughs> impeachment ad guy, announced last week he would not be running for president, went to Iowa to announce it, uh, that he instead intends to spend millions of dollars on impeachment efforts this year. You know, I guess I guess good for him for not running. We we had often said, you know, is he spending all this money to get himself on TV to advance a presidential campaign? It turns out he was not. Um, so that's good. And and again, and we've also said this: Tom Steyer's organization, Next Gen, has spent a lot of money on the ground organizing in 2018. They were very helpful. They did a lot of good work. So that part's great. You know, I think the whole impeachment campaign is still a bit baffling to me. So I have to say, I when I saw that he wasn't running. Like it did allow, like it did just sort of 
allow me to recategorize Tom Steyer because I think my mm-hmm. concern through the last two years was here's somebody using a, a erogenous an erogenous zone of Democratic voters, which is impeachment, mm-hmm. to kind of get his name recognition out there and get people to be part of his organization, which is genuinely doing good work. So a double-edged sword from the beginning. But now that he's someone who is not running, right? Maybe he's thinking of running in the future. Who knows? But that to me does a lot to alleviate my concerns that he's just doing it for himself. And then then it becomes just a debate about how to argue for impeachment. And the one thing I would say is the situation is very different now than it was two years ago. We now have the House. And so I think there's a far more legitimate argument to be made for having an organization out there that is focused on building a case for impeachment. I'm not totally sold on it, but the fact that he's now not just doing it to raise his own name profile and has done this great organizing, uh, I think is really good. And, uh, you know, uh, that's uh, my nuanced position on Tom Steyer. I just want to know what the impeachment effort looks like going forward, because yeah. if it's $40 million of ads, that is a, not a good use of money. It's a terrible waste of money. If it's organizing in Florida, Ohio, Wisconsin, like it, that is a great use of money. And I know that stuff he's already doing. Like They've done incredible work getting young people uh, registered and involved and motivated. If they continue to put money into that kind of work, like... God bless you. Thank you. Uh, if it's just TV ads, I think that that's lighting the money on fire. Yeah, again, my, my big issue here is impeachment is an issue right now and in the coming months when uh, Mueller finally finishes his, his work here. Um, impeachment Crossing will, those T's and dotting those I's, Mueller. In, impeachment will not be an issue in 2020 because the issue in 2020 is already replacing the president. <laughs> Well, all these Democrats, you know what I'm saying? Like right. all these Democrats are running to replace the president. Right. So a bunch of ads talking about impeachment as there's a bunch of Democrats running to replace the president doesn't make a ton of sense yeah, to me. Yeah, you know what though? I agree with you. I agree with you. And then yet I see what Tom Steyer says and it's inarguable. He's like this person is a threat. Yeah, he is course. dangerous. Oh, he yeah. is impeachable. Everything yeah, must be done to remove him, him as soon as possible. Right. So now, it's like I, it's, you know, I, I I am sympathetic. If there are soft lawmakers who are uh, you know, Republicans who we think we can peel off and get them to vote for impeachment and you dump five million dollars of ads in their state yeah I'm cool. the, okay interesting i get that let's talk about it to- totally um all right finally this isn't about the presidential campaign but one republican congressman will have a primary challenger in 2020 and that's avowed white nationalist steve king who last week said the following in an interview with the new york times quote white nationalist white supremacist western civilization how did that language become offensive how indeed guys how indeed he is the worst person on the planet. Thank God Republicans are finally going to strip him of his committees or maybe censure him or Hopefully, something. Possibly. But, like, he, this guy and his disgusting, hateful views have been hiding in plain sight for years and years and years. And, you know, there was a Media Matters did a study of how much coverage Rashida Tlaib's use of the word impeach the motherfucker or words uh, impeach the motherfucker got on cable news versus uh steve king saying white nationalist white supremacist word comments and uh it was like five to one in yeah. favor of Tlaib. so it's something that doesn't get the coverage because i guess maybe it makes a bunch of reporters in washington uncomfortable calling someone a racist but he's a vile racist and he has also, no place in congress it's also there's a you know uh Maybe a senator saying motherfucker, a, a member of Congress saying motherfucker is more newsworthy than a Republican being racist just because they're it's not exactly it. news. Yeah. The, uh, I was, the other thing about this is all these Republicans turning on Steve King this week. It just like reminded me of the line from Casablanca, which is I'm shocked, shocked to find gambling in this casino. Like, <laughs> well, come on, say, guys, where right. you been? He's, he's retweeted Nazi sympathizers. 
He retweeted some Dutch nationalist saying our civilization can't be restored with other people's babies. He's met with far right groups with ties to Nazis in the past. Like, you know, I'm glad that Republicans are finally speaking out. Like, where were they this whole time? It is amazing to me, by the way, for all the the Paul Ryan legacy defenders out there, (laughs) Kevin McCarthy is the one who said action will be taken against Steve King when Paul Ryan refused to ever take that action. And a lot of Paul Ryan's defenders said, oh, well. You know, he he's done everything again. He spoke out. No, no, no. You're going to say now Kevin McCarthy is going to be better than this? Kevin, uh-huh. Carth- Ke- Kevin McCarthy cracked the code? He's the one who, who unlocked this fucking Enigma box? Yeah. You couldn't figure out how to criticize Steve King and Kevin McCarthy? Boundless cowardice, Paul Ryan. Hopefully, uh, hopefully Steve King goes down, loses his committee assignments, and, uh, and this, you know. And hopefully it's primary. Yeah, well, he's got a challenger. Hopefully this guy, uh, this guy will take him down here. So, All right, when we come back, uh, we will hear... Love its interviews with uh, teachers who were striking here in L.A. It was, it was actually really great being out there, and we had some very interesting conversations, so check it out. Great. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at crooked.com slash friends. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com store to shop. Hey, it's Lovett, and I'm on my way to your city. And by on my way, I mean I'm still in the shower, but still, about to head out. Love It or Leave It Live on Tour is heading all over the country. We'll be in Charlotte, Asheville, Boston, Madison, Chicago, and Pittsburgh. And if we're not coming to your city this time, I'm sorry, the country is too big. Take it up with the pioneers. To learn more and get tickets, head to crooked.com slash events. We are outside Fairfax High School, public high school in Los Angeles, where teachers, parents, and students are part of a teacher strike for higher pay, smaller class sizes, less standardized testing, and more resources for the city's public schools. As you can hear, a lot of people have come out this morning, even though it is a very rainy, and by Los Angeles standards, cold winter morning. My name is Katie Andrews and I teach 9th and 12th grade English here at Fairfax. I've been here for four years. I'm originally from Louisiana and I've taught in the district for 20 years. Uh, We're striking today for a number of reasons. Number one, we're striking for uh, lower class sizes. We don't want 36 students in an elementary class. We don't want 46 students in, in secondary classes. 
We're also striking for a pay raise for teachers that keeps up with, uh, with cost of living increase. We're striking to keep education public and in the community so that we aren't taken over by charters and, and corporations and everything. In New Orleans, my, my, my home state is Louisiana, charters have taken over the entire, uh, the entire city. There's no more public schools left in New Orleans. And what happens is, is like, educate, I mean, education shouldn't be controlled by corporations. Businesses and business people don't have any business and have no experience coming in here and setting educational standards and rubrics and everything. Leave that to the professionals. Leave it to teachers to teach. Now, did you plan on having 30 years of, of policy culminate on an incredibly rainy morning? Could you have picked a better day, you think? Oh, I totally planned for that. Sure, yeah. No, we, 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 we picked the day, and we were supposed to actually start last Thursday. Uh, we didn't know when it was actually going to start. It was pushed back to today and everything. And you know what? I think the rain just actually strengthens our resolve, because if we if we didn't believe in this, we wouldn't be here. You know, I'm freezing, and, and we're here, and we're going to stay here until we get what we deserve and what teachers deserve, what kids deserve, what our community deserves. So we've seen teacher strikes across the country. We've seen them in places like Oklahoma and West Virginia. Like these are very different places. Like what do you think ties these different movements together? I think actually what ties us all together is the fact that this has culminated in a big fight against freedom of, of intellectual freedom versus money. I think it, it culminates in the fact that we need to be free to teach and students need to be free to learn without the aggressive oversight and coercion of money from big business. And one of, the, one of the demands is about standardized testing and having less standardized testing. Why is that important and, and what do parents think about that? We actually, uh, we, we resent all the standardized testing. Some is good, but it's gotten more and more and more and more to the point where we're not teaching actually like things like literature and math and social studies. We're teaching to the test, to, to prepare them for the next test. The moment that test is over, we start preparing for the next test. That's not teaching. What, uh, what are some of the books, so you're an English teacher, what are some of the books your students are reading right now? We're reading The Odyssey. And oh, come on. Ugh. <laughs> that is so tough. Well, it actually is better because I actually bought with my own money, and I'm, I'm a teacher, so what I do, I bought a graphic novel of the Odyssey, and it's beautiful, it's full color, and kids just get right into it. And we also read Romeo and Juliet, and I know you're going to say, oh, that's so tough. Yeah, it's tough, but I bought also with my own money a side-by-side -side version, which means it has Elizabethan English on one side and regular contemporary English on the other side. And it's like, we do this, we spend our money because we want to help kids. When, when the textbook isn't enough, we go above and beyond. And this is why when, when teachers like buy stuff with their own money, we deserve a pay raise because we're here to help. It's what we do. We are helpers. One, one last question. I, you know, there is a difference between a state like California and a state like West Virginia or a state like Oklahoma, which is that California is a high-tax state. This is already a really expensive place to live. And you feel that as one of the, one of the big sources of tension, right? What do, you, what do you think is driving the fact that even in a place like California, where taxes are already so high, the teachers are still having to take money out of their own pockets to, to buy school supplies, and parents are already paying so much just to be in these school districts? How do you make that argument to parents that, that schools still need more resources? What do you think about that challenge? I think that throwing money at education is always a good idea because it's not just us. It's not here at Fairfax. It's not just here in California. It's nationwide. Overall, over the past several years, education has been cut and cut and cut. Any, any state budget, education is always the first to be cut. When you put more money in education, it's like we all do better we all do better. Hi, what's your name? I'm Elliot Kim. I'm a senior here at Fairfax High School. And what's your name? 
Hi, I'm Audrey Chang. I'm a senior at, um, here at Fairfax High School. So why are you out here supporting the strike today? So we know the strike stands for a lot of different things. This things for the teachers and for us as students. The teachers uh, want to put the students first, and of course we support that. We want to see that our education is improved um, by smaller class sizes and also not just uh, in terms of our education in the classroom, but also uh, for the support that is available on campuses. So nurses, counselors, librarians, uh, we want to see them more often on a campus and giving more, to the, um, giving more to the school and to our educational experience. So if you were in class today, what, if you were in school today, what would have been the biggest class size like, of your day? I'm not exactly sure, maybe like 40, 50 students in the classroom. We had class sizes where um, some students had to sit on the floor um, while the teacher was giving lessons. They would alleviate that problem by like distributing the students to other classrooms, but it, this class size was still a big problem. So we're in Los Angeles. This is one of the richest cities, one of the richest countries in the world. And you're saying that in some of your classroom, there wouldn't be enough desks and it was so overcrowded that kids had to sit on the ground. Yeah. When you're in a class that big, do you find that like only the loud kids that always answer every question talk? Like, do, like how many kids are able to actually participate in a class when it's like that big? Surprisingly, even some of the loud kids can't even talk. That's horrible. As a loud kid, I find that offensive. <laughs> I mean, uh, mainly because the class size is so huge. I guess um, students feel um, that, well, it's huge and they kind of get a little um, embarrassed or like kind of pressured to not to talk. And um, especially for teachers, it's really hard to manage a class size that big. And like materials like paper um, would run short on, um, for their classes. So it's really important that um, class sizes are decreased. Uh, my name is Pisco Ironhand. I am a senior at Fairfax High School. Essentially, LAUSD is saying that they don't have the money to help pay teachers more because the living costs have gone up as they keep increasing. Uh, students, student classes have gone up as well, like the size of, of the number of teachers. The size of the students in each and every class has gone up and um, they're sitting on $1.6 billion saying that they don't have the money to help pay for more things that the schools have been needing. Teachers have to pay out of pocket for their own school supplies, you know. Our technology, like half of the iPads that we use are broken, half of the laptops don't work. Most of the time you can't even connect to the Wi-Fi, so we have all this technology that we're sitting on that doesn't work. And uh, you have a lock on a choker on your neck, you have a pin in your ear, you have a pretty sick belt. This feels like a protest outfit. Well, you know, the red shirt is basically my protest outfit. You know, red is the UTLA color, and so, you know, red for the teachers. I, I love protesting because I love speaking for what's right and what's wrong, you know, and what needs to be going on. So, you know, whether I'm, you know, 17 like I am right now, 27 or 57, I'll still be out here if they need me to be out here. So you strike me as somebody that has teachers that love you, and teachers that don't love you as much? Um, I've, I've had my fair share of teachers that, you know, we kind of, our personalities kind of clash. Yeah. Uh, I'd say for the most part that I do get along with most of my teachers, and I honestly don't blame any of my teachers that have, you know, not really necessarily liked me because, again, like, so many of them out there are at the ends of their ropes, and if you see someone dressed like this coming into your class in the first day of school, I'd be a little bit like, too, you know? So, have there any teachers you've clashed with that are out here today that have seen you and have been like, that's cool? 
I actually saw an administrator who I kind of clashed with one day when I was having a bad morning. We got into a yelling match. I saw her today and we kind of made a little bit of eye contact. But other than that, you know. But was it nice? It was like, look, you know, we're on the same side. You know, it's it's like, you know, even people that I've like had trouble with online and stuff have like, you know, been commenting and like, you know, messaging me about like what's going on because it's like your personal situations don't don't matter. This doesn't matter. You need to put everything aside to, you know, for the betterment of the future for everybody, you know? Yeah, I'm uh, Steve G. I uh, am a teacher here at Fairfax. I teach for the Visual Arts Magnet. I attended uh, Fairfax back in 1988, the year before that uh, first teacher strike, or that recent, that teacher strike back in uh, 1989. So I've been uh, teaching here for about 25 years, approximately. And what do you teach? I teach uh, AP English, 12th grade. I also teach uh, 12th grade honors, 12th grade regular. I have a 10th grade uh, currently. I've taught 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th, all, all the grade levels over this past uh, two and a half decades. Like, just being honest, do you think the education at this school has gotten worse because of the need for more resources in the time that you've been here? I mean, there's always going to be newest factors on why uh, things are more difficult. Um, I would definitely see a, a decline um, over these last uh, 25 years, whether it has to do with parent involvement, whether it has to do with uh, student uh, engagement, whether it has to do with um, lack of supplies. Um, I mean, so there's a bunch of different things. So I would say uh, definitely we need uh, the district to um, have that support to say, you know what, we need the best teachers to teach the best students so that they do well. I mean, I have a kid right now who's um, actually going to be t uh, attending Harvard next next fall. You know, and a lot of it is her own work, but a lot of it is, you know, the work we've been doing with her, as well as just um, support staff, uh, people that, um, you know, have been encouraging of her. And, you know, we need those type of kids who are motivated, but we need teachers who are motivated. And part of that is feeling supported, feeling that our, our, our uh, work counts and our work matters to them. And I, I believe uh, us as teachers, we do desire that. You know, we want to be out here. We don't want to be out here. We want to be in there. But, you know, so ultimately um, we're willing to fight for what we feel is important for the students, for the parents, and for um, our own livelihood. What's the biggest, what, what are the most kids you have in one class right now? Right now the most I have is like 39. Um, I've had as many as 45, 46, 47. And teaching English is uh, very difficult having to do all the essays. So for my uh, 12th graders, I have them do personal statements. And so they do the UC personal statement, which is over 1,200 words. And so I'm greeting... I'm grading and reading, you know, 1,200 word essays just to get these kids feeling as, as, as though they can make it to the next level. So I think it's very difficult for us as teachers, especially in English, uh, to be doing essays on the weekends, uh, lesson planning. And so I would say, yeah, especially in English, it's a very tough, uh, difficult task having 40 plus in classrooms. Do you ever make your kids read Dickens? Uh, Dickens, I have them cover as a se separate work um, outside during winter for them to present. I think Dickens is so boring. Oh, well, you know, it's a tale of two cities sometimes. <laughs> All right, thank you very much. Thanks to the teachers and the parents and the students I talked to. Thanks for coming out. It was a deluge out there. You don't know what it was like, John, little Tommy. Little rain in L.A. is all we're talking about all yeah. day. It's going to be a whole thing. The t it was, And also, uh, Mukta and Caroline and Nar also came out. And right. the four of us, after shivering, got hot chocolate at a Starbucks. You're the real hero in this strike. Yeah. <laughs> Always get it to be about. Now we know. Yeah. We, I, we, we. Mm. Nar's sitting right there. Yeah, she's Nar not talking was about there. it. We'll talk to you guys on Thursday. <laughs> Bye, everyone.